right, so Bethel family, and if any of you are guests with us, we love the gospel of grace here at Bethel. Anybody say amen to that? So the good news about Jesus is that we can't save ourselves. We can't do it. We can't atone for our sins. It's, we're helpless. We're hopeless. But God is, over and over again, he's the initiator. When Adam and Eve ate the fruit, the forbidden fruit, what did God do? He came down. And yes, there was judgment. But even at the beginning, he slaughtered an animal and covered their nakedness. He initiated. He always initiates. And so the gospel is the good news that God didn't leave us dead in our sins. So our sin is basically just turning away from, it's kind of like cutting off the branch you're sitting on. Boom. If you cut a flower or a tree, it's still there, but it's dead. There's no more you know, nourishing nutrients and water and so forth going to that tree or flower. And so that's what we're like. When we sin and rebel against God, we've all fallen short of the glory of God. We've all sinned. We are dead, spiritually dead. So God has to give us new life. So Ephesians 2, you're dead in your, in your sins. But if you are a Christian this morning, if you are trusting in Jesus, what happened? Is it because you're so smart? Is it because, you know, you figured it out? No, because God made you alive together with Christ. He saved you by his grace. So it's all of his grace from him and through him and to him are all things, right? Even think about, you know, John 3 and, and Jesus with Nicodemus. He said, you must be born again. At one level, how do you respond to that? You can't do that. I mean, obviously, Nicodemus mis mis misunderstood, but you can't rebirth yourself, right? God has to do that. So we love the gospel of grace, and, you know, we're always going to preach it here. But is the gospel of grace incompatible with commitment and decisions? Does God care about our commitment decisiveness, recommitment, taking seriously our need to change. Is that incompatible with the gospel of grace? I'm sure you're all, you all know the answer to that. No. Of course, it's not incompatible. But do you ever chafe? Has this ever happened? Do you ever chafe at calls to decide or to surrender all or to recommit? Does cynicism ever kind of creep in? When someone makes a strong call like that, you know, whether it's a preacher or a teacher or maybe somebody in your community group or whatever, yeah, we'll see how long that lasts. Or I've been around that, you know, merry-go-round a few times, make a commitment, and then I know where I'm going to be in a week or a month. So far from being incompatible, the calls to decision and commitment are all over the Bible. Okay, let me just give you a few biblical accounts to, to kind of put in your mind here. 
as we head into, kind of prepare to head into Nehemiah 10. So you remember after the golden calf, so God's brought his people out of Egypt. He's bringing them through the wilderness. He's going to give them the law at Sinai, at Mount Sinai. Moses goes up the mountain. When he comes down, what happened? Golden calf. They're worshiping the golden calf. And when Moses saw, Exodus 32, 25, that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. It was a call to decisive side-taking, to commit. Or Joshua, before he died, Joshua 24, 15. Tom read it a little bit earlier. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Or how about Elijah before the showdown with the prophets of Baal? You know, 1 Kings 18 Verse 21, Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? So indecisive. If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. That God contest up on the, you know, with Elijah and the prophets of Baal wasn't about entertainment. God's just going to impress everybody. It was about allegiance. It was about worship and devotion and obedience. So God cares about commitment. God cares when we are characterized by indecision, hedging, apathy, indifference, hesitation, holding out, two-timing. You remember when Jesus said in Matthew 6.24, no one can serve two masters. He doesn't say no one should. That's true as well. <laughs> but you can't. You actually can't. No one can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Or in John's vision, in Revelation 2, to the church in Ephesus, Jesus said to that church, I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. So calls to decision and action are all over the Bible. So maybe you're familiar probably heard the line from the end of the Alfred Lloyd Tennyson poem. Maybe you didn't know this is where it came from, but it's a poem by Alfred Lloyd Tennyson that says, better to have loved and lost than never to have loved at all, right? Well, how about this? Better to have decided and failed than never to have decided at all. Or if we can mix a couple biblical stories together, better to walk with God with a limp like Jacob, who became Israel, than to limp between two opinions. All right, so with that in mind, let's dive into Nehemiah 10, 
but we do need to start in Nehemiah 9.38, okay? In fact, in the Hebrew Bible, 9.38 is a part of chapter 10 because it all hangs together. So, because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing on the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. Because of this, what's the this? Well, last week we looked at chapter 9, okay? What was this all about? So, Nehemiah had heard that Jerusalem was still in dire straits, even though Zerubbabel had led people back. First wave, Ezra, another wave. They had rebuilt the altar, rebuilt the temple. But again, years later, and it's still, the city is in dire straits. It's not, the wall is, you know, not, not uh, completed, so there's no safety in the city. And he is heartbroken at this and grieved, and he fasts and he prays, and he finally, you know, goes before the king and says, would you send me back so that I can rebuild the wall? And the goal was not just to rebuild the wall, but to rebuild the city, rebuild the people of God. And so he's done that, and the wall's completed, and the people celebrate that, and they, they start to read the law again. And they hear of how they've neglected God's law, and they are mourning. But then, you know what? They're in, chapter, they're, they're in the seventh month, which is full of feasts of celebration. So they celebrate those feasts, and then they get back to dealing with their sin. We looked at that last week. They rehearse God's faithfulness over generation after generation. He's been so merciful despite their rebellion, despite their fickleness throughout history repeatedly, despite their wandering and their rebellion. When they cry out for help, he's answered them and delivered them. And so because of that, because they're still under the thumb of Persia, if you look at the end of chapter 9, verses 32 to 37, they're not free ultimately in their own land. And because now they are crying out to him, he's answered in the past, would you do it again? Please answer and help us. So because of God's nature, because they're under the thumb of Persia, because the people are crying out for mercy, because of all this, they make a covenant. We make a firm covenant in writing. And then it goes on to list all these names in chapter 10, verses 1 to 27. So what's going on here? Well, the word for covenant in verse 38 of chapter 9 is not the normal word for covenant. It's a word related to covenants that emphasizes that they are committing to faithfulness. They're committing themselves to faithfulness to the covenant. So basically what's happening is they're making a covenant to keep the covenant. They're covenanting to keep the covenant that's already been made by God, that they've broken. So they're pledging their faithfulness, basically. They don't have a right to make a covenant with God. God's the covenant maker, right? He's the one who initiates and establishes the covenants with his people. Just think of it, Noahic covenant, you know, the rainbow. God initiated that. Abrahamic covenant, God initiated that. Mosaic covenant, God initiated that. Davidic covenant, God initiated that. The new covenant in the blood of Jesus, God initiated all of them. But they can, and they needed to keep the covenant that God had made with them, especially because they'd broken it. That's why they ended up in exile in the first place. That's why Jerusalem got burned to the ground in the first place. 
So they're recommitting to covenant faithfulness. And that's what Nehemiah was after all along. Not just rebuilding a wall with stones and mortar. He's after the reformation of the people and the rebuilding of the people of God, which is what every generation needs. And it's what we're after as we walk through the book of Nehemiah. Reformation. Lord, how do you want to reform and reshape us and build us so that you can use us, so that your name is hallowed among us and your kingdom comes and your will is done? So James Hamilton has a really insightful point that he makes here. He says, the returnees faced a situation strained Do we have this quote? The returnees faced a situation strained by several factors. First, there were strong statements in the prophets leading up to the exile that the covenant had been broken. Think of the book of Hosea and the infidelity. The destruction of the temple and the exile from the land was like Israel being killed with nothing left but a valley of dry bones. Little note, Chris Elliott's going to preach on January 2nd, and he's going to preach on... Ezekiel 37, the Valley of Dry Bones. So you can pray for him and look forward to that. Their being brought back to the land was like resurrection from the dead. But what was the status of the covenant? Was the broken covenant renewed? Like if we killed it, if we've broken it, what's our relationship with God like? And what about these foreigners who had separated themselves from the peoples of the land? So you can imagine if you get in the minds of those people They've killed the covenant. They've broken it. So you can see why they're coming back to, to God, needing to make this solemn, firm commitment to keep the covenant that they had previously broken. It's kind of like a renewal of vows ceremony. Have you ever been a part of one of those? Where maybe a couple's been married for a long time. Maybe they've gone through some deep waters. Maybe they've survived even infidelity. And the couple wants to renew their vows. So doing that ceremony doesn't mean that they're not going to have to work on their marriage and do the day-to-day stuff, right? It's not like a magic pill. But the fact that the real battle is one day in and day out doesn't mean that the renewal ceremony is worthless either. It can be really meaningful and a really powerful kind of beginning of a new day, right? Well, Nehemiah 10 is kind of like that a renewal ceremony, covenant renewal ceremony. So they're not trying to save themselves. They are repenting and returning to Yahweh, the one who has redeemed them. And they're pledging themselves to trust and obey. All right, so that's point number one. Point number two, the next thing we read about is who is making this commitment. So if I could have a volunteer to read the first 27 verses of chapter 10. No, I'm just kidding. Um, So point number two, everyone Everyone's all in here. So I just want to point out a few things. I'm not going to read through all these names. But look, Nehemiah the governor is the first to sign. We actually don't know who that Zedekiah is. Maybe a right-hand man, some official of some sort. Um, then the other leaders, the priests, you see their names in verses 2 to 8. And then the Levites in verse 9 and their brothers in verses 10 to 13. And then the chiefs of the people in verses 14 to 27, and then the rest of the people mentioned in verse 28. So the leaders sign first. Just a couple things to note here in these names. 
The leaders lead in the recommitment to the covenant. They're the pace setters. They're leading by example. So isn't that the way that leadership should be? Leaders are never perfect, but they should lead by example. There's no rallying to a better future behind people who are saying, do as I say, not as I do. So for all of you who are a leader, we lead by example. Second, everyone is all in. Look at verses 28 and 29. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the land to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers and their nobles and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law. So it seems that the everyone even includes previous outsiders who had separated themselves from the pagan nations all and all who have separated themselves okay so this is going to be important when we get to verse 30 getting ahead of myself a little bit but you'll see why because in verse 30 they make a commitment to not be involved in spiritually mixed marriages when you hear mixed marriages you think maybe of the law in our land, sadly, that made interracial marriage illegal in the U.S. in the 60s. Did you know that? It was struck down in 1967, thankfully. That's not what's going on here. The fact that all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the land to the law of God means that people like Ruth or Rahab would be included because they separated themselves because they wanted to be a part of the people of God. So Rahab, the Canaanite prostitute, again, she lived a while before this, but the point is someone like her or someone like Ruth would be included here. They, Rahab became a believer and joined Israel. She, you know, she married a guy named Salmon, and guess who their son was? Boaz. And who was Boaz's wife? Ruth, who was a Moabite. Moabites were like, you know, enemy number one for the people of God. Wicked enemies of God's people. But Ruth separated herself from her idolatrous pagan past and followed Yahweh. So everyone is now all in. From the leaders to all the people and even outsiders who've been brought in. Now what does this all in look like? Point number three to walk in all of God's law, as we see in verse 29, especially in three areas, as it relates to marriage, Sabbath, and giving, okay? So let's look at those each in turn. First, um, the big picture kind of umbrella thing in verse 29, all the people join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our God and his rules and his statutes. So first off, just note that they're committing to keep all the law, not just kind of picking and choosing, you know, what they like, kind of designer religion. They're counting the cost of this commitment. They're accepting the consequences of infidelity to the covenant. It says they commit to entering into a curse. They're moving all their chips over onto the Yahweh square. No more diversification of their spiritual assets and allegiances. 
They're putting all their eggs in the Yahweh basket. No more indifference. No more going through the motions. No more Sunday-only faith. No more half-hearted religious observance. They're going all in. So for them, there were three key areas that they focused on in this covenant renewal. It's not that these are the only areas of the law that matter. It's that these three key areas are areas where they had been unfaithful and had compromised, and they needed to get that right. So they needed to address those areas. Marriage, Sabbath, giving. Let's look at them each in turn. Verse 30, marriage. No mixed marriages. Again, this is not racism or ethnic superiority problem. It's a holiness problem. So it's a problem that was addressed at the end of the book of Ezra. And you know Ezra and Nehemiah go together. Sadly, it'll be a problem again at the end of Nehemiah. So marrying, if, if people of God, you know, people who say they worship God end up marrying idolaters, people who worship these pagan gods, what would happen? It inevitably led to spiritual compromise and idolatry. So this kind of marriage was clearly prohibited in the law. If you look in Exodus 34, God warned his people repeatedly, their gods will be a snare for you. If you don't believe it, like Solomon is exhibit A, right? His heart was led astray. So this is about spiritual purity, fidelity to Yahweh. So it's, it's not about ethnic purity. It's about religious, spiritual purity. So again, Rahab, Canaanite prostitute, and Salmon. Ruth, the Moabite, and Boaz. These marriages are celebrated. These women are honored in the old covenant people of God. Just look at Matthew's genealogy to see that. So the issue, this issue, you know, maybe doesn't have like clear, direct application in the new covenant, maybe. Or we might wonder if it does. Well, actually, I think it does. If you're not married, or let's say you're discipling a child, you know, in your home or someone else as a young believer or whatever, 1 Corinthians 7.39 says that singles should marry only in the Lord. And while the warning to not be unequally yoked in 2 Corinthians 6 actually has much broader application than marriage, it's not really focused in that context on marriage, it certainly applies to marriage. So I think there is a contemporary application to this. Um, there is an article by Kathy Keller, Tim Keller's wife, titled, Don't Take My Word For It. I'd encourage you to read the whole thing, but I want, you to, I want to just read an excerpt from it. Um, it should be up here on the screen. So she writes of how in, in her ministry with Tim in New York City for decades, uh, Christians marrying people who were not Christians was one of the most common pastoral issues that they faced. And so she shared how you know, passages like 1 Corinthians 7, 39 or 2 Corinthians 6.14 that I mentioned before sometimes just don't carry weight with the people that they're trying to, you know, counsel in these things. And then she writes this. When someone has already allowed his or her heart to become engaged with a person outside the faith, I find that the Bible has already been devalued as the non-negotiable rule of faith and practice. Instead, variants of the serpent's question to Eve, did God really say, are floated 
as if somehow this case might be eligible for an exemption. Considering how much they love each other, how the unbeliever supports and understands the Christian's faith, how they are soulmates despite the absence of a shared soul faith. Having grown weary and impatient, I want to say it won't work, not in the long run. Marriage is hard enough when you have two believers who are completely in harmony spiritually. Just spare yourself the heartache and get over it. If only I could pair those sadder and wiser women and men in unequal marriages with the blithely optimistic singles who are convinced that their passion and commitment will overcome all obstacles. Even the obstacles of bold disobedience need not apply to them. Only 10 minutes of conversation would be necessary. In the words of one woman who was married to a perfectly nice man who did not share her faith, quote, if you think you are lonely before you get married, it's nothing compared to how lonely you can be after you are married. And then she outlines that there are really only three ways an unequal marriage can turn out. One, in order to be more in sync with your spouse, the Christian will have to push Christ to the margins of his or her life. This may not involve actually repudiating the faith, but in matters such as devotional life, hospitality to believers, small group meetings, emergency hosting of people in need, missionary support, tithing, raising children in the faith, fellowship with other believers, those things will have to be minimized or avoided in order to preserve peace in the home. Or, two, alternatively, if the believer in the marriage holds on to a robust Christian life and practice, the non-believing partner will have to be marginalized. If he or she can't understand the point of Bible study and prayer or missions trips or hospitality, then he or she can't or won't participate alongside the believing spouse in those activities. The deep unity and oneness of a marriage cannot flourish when one partner cannot fully participate in the other person's most important commitments. Or three, either the marriage experiences stress and breaks up, or it experiences stress and stays together, achieving some kind of truce that involves one spouse or the other capitulating in some areas, but which leaves both parties feeling lonely and unhappy. And then she goes on to talk about, you know, the unequally yoked passage. If you have two animals that are unequally yoked, both animals are chafed by that, you know, unequal yoke. So this is not to say, please hear me here, this is not to say that God can't redeem things if you made this mistake. This is also not to say that God is displeased if someone comes to faith and their spouse remains outside of the faith. There's actually explicit help and hope in 1 Corinthians 7 and 1 Peter 3 for situations like that. This is a situation going into it that I'm addressing, where you just stick your fingers in your ears because, you know, I love this person. So I'm spending some time on this to say, listen, there maybe are some younger folks among us. Can I appeal to the teenagers, to the young adults, and to the rest of us? You have to decide and commit ahead of time because if you're limping between two opinions and you get hooked in relationally and there's investment, it's going to be really hard to put the toothpaste back in the tube. So just a, a loving warning and encouragement to go all in and trust the Lord with who you are willing to date and ultimately with who you're willing to marry. Second issue that they address is the Sabbath, okay? So basically what was going on is 
you know, they're in Jerusalem, Sabbath keeping, keeping that's the, the fourth commandment, and there were foreign traders who would come into Jerusalem on the Sabbath, and you can see how this looked like an interesting loophole for those who might be a little opportunistic <laughs> and not have the right attitude toward the Sabbath. Well, if we're buying from them, then they are actually doing the work. So none of us is breaking the Sabbath, so this is okay. But you can see how if you're looking for loopholes and you, you kind of already begun to compromise, and you can easily imagine how this dynamic impacted the spirit of the day of rest. Okay, so the Sabbath was a gift for the people of God, but it was also a test, a test of faith. Will you make an idol of work? Or will you trust me to provide? Will you anxiously toil even, you know, just seven days a week? Or will you trust me and rest and focus on my provision and my goodness? There was also a forgiveness of debts the seventh year. And you can see how that would be a faith issue as well. Will you trust me to provide and forgive those debts? Or will you take matters into your own hands? Will you, will you squeeze the poor for every penny? Which leads into the third issue of giving. But before we go there, you know, in the New Covenant, we don't have the same kind of Sabbath obligations. Actually, Jesus' call to come to him means that to fulfill the Sabbath is to trust in him and experience his rest 24-7. It's not to say that there isn't wisdom in having rhythms of work and rest, but it's just not the same. But perhaps what we need to hear is Jesus' call in Matthew 6 to not be anxious for your life, what you're going to eat or drink or wear. Look at the birds. Look at the flowers. Seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you as well. Trust me is what he's saying. And then finally, the giving, the third point in verses 34 to 39. Derek Kidner says it well. He says, Before the exile, the temple had too often been a mere talisman, like a lucky rabbit's foot. And its well-patronized activities, a sedative for the conscience. Now, in Nehemiah's day, the temptation was the opposite, to grudge the effort and expense of it all. So in the New Covenant, for us on this side of the cross, the people of God are the temple of God. The church is the place of God's presence. So the giving passages in the New Testament don't have the same ties to the sacrificial system, obviously, but they still do focus on supporting the work of the ministry and the mission, both locally and around the world, like with what Colleen does or with the singers or any of our other missions um, partners. So I think what should echo in our ears with this last one is the last line of the chapter. Do you see what they say down there in verse 39 after explaining that they're going to, to be faithful with their obligations to give and support the work of the temple? In verse 39, they say, we will not neglect the house of our God. So that's a good summary. And it's a call for us to commit if we are not already there? Have we committed? We are not going to neglect the work of God. We want to be involved and engaged in building up the body of Christ, 
building the kingdom of God. There's lots of ways that you do that, but one key way is with faithful and sacrificial giving. So those were three areas of particular compromise for them that needed to be addressed in their day. What might be those areas for us today? It's worth thinking about. Maybe the Bible's sexual ethic. Maybe the exclusivity of Christ. Jesus is the only way, not one of many ways. Or maybe in our angry age, bearing the fruit of the Spirit, rather than being nasty and hypercritical and tribal on all kinds of peripheral issues. So what might be those key areas? I would encourage you to prayerfully ponder that. Your personal areas or our areas as a church and pray through those things. So as we reflect personally as a church just on kind of the application of this passage to our lives, um, I think the real point, the main point here is, is this. Choose this day. Okay? God intends for us to make some decisions and to get down to commitments. Think about it this way. Do you ever need to kind of stop with your eating patterns and say, oh, okay, I have totally let this stuff slide. I need to evaluate and plan and make some changes. And that one decision impacts hundreds of decisions. Or exercise. I mean, we're heading into the new year, right? We do this kind of thing sometimes at this type, time of year. Oftentimes, you're busy, taking care of your body, goes to the side, and sometimes you realize that you kind of get sick of it, and you need to stop and make some commitments. And that one decision impacts lots of decisions. Or financial habits, right? I mean, has anybody ever stopped because of, you know, credit, debt, credit card debt or whatever, and they sign up for a Dave Ramsey, you know, seminar or whatever it is, and then a lifetime of budgeting, probably with some fits and starts, especially at the beginning, but a lifetime of budgeting flows from that one decision. Isn't that amazing how that can happen? Like how much downstream comes from one decision? Or maybe you need to commit to family worship and a thousand nights of sowing the word, the seeds of the word in those little hearts will issue forth from that one decision. So there's a podcast that I listen to sometimes, and the host wrote a blog post that um, I saw. I think this is maybe a helpful little illustration. So there's this guy named Donald Nuff. He writes, a renowned mathematician and recipient of the Turing Award. Apparently that's a Nobel Prize sort of thing in the computer science world. He retired from using email in 1990. Don't be too jealous of Mr. Nuth. Um, this isn't going to work for all of us, but unfortunately. He issued a public statement on his Stanford faculty page, and here's a part of it. I have been a happy man ever since January 1, 1990, when I no longer had an email address. I'd used email since about 1975, and it seems to me that 15 years of email is plenty for one lifetime. 
Email is a wonderful thing for people whose role in life is to be on top of things. But not for me. My role is to be on the bottom of things. What I do takes long hours of studying and uninterruptible concentration. So think about the impact of one decision downstream. Bishop Desmond Tutu once said, there comes a point where we need to stop just pulling people out of the river. We need to go upstream and find out why they're falling in. So in the spiritual realm, why do we regularly review and evaluate and make changes? Or if you don't, do you see how important it is to do that? It's not to earn anything with God, no. It's because changes actually need to be made because we are so prone to wander, aren't we? And we can get into some really unhealthy ruts. So covenant renewal ceremony, how practical and helpful is Nehemiah 10? How needed? So if you've lost your first love, should you just keep plowing ahead with busyness and turn it on the radio every time you're in the car and never? No, like stop. This is what this whole for the love of God fasting and prayer thing is all about. If we've been spiritual adulteresses, James 4, you adulteresses, like idolatry is adultery, spiritual adultery. Maybe we need a covenant renewal ceremony. Maybe we need to stop and repent and evaluate and commit to a new trajectory. So again, this is purpose of fasting and prayer in December. Go look at Isaiah 58. We looked at it this past Wednesday night and encourage you to join us for prayer this Wednesday night at seven, from 7 to 8. This is the fast that I choose, not just not eating, okay? That's, that's only a means to an end. It's so that you can focus on and feed on something better. You're hungry for something else because we, we don't, live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. We need the love of God to be real. We need his joy to be in us. We need it to be full. We need to love God with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength so that we can love our neighbors as ourselves. We need renewal. So this fasting thing is not some like tit for tat, pull the lever of blessing, out comes the spiritual blessing, you know. It's so that we can stop and evaluate and ask God by his spirit to search and know our hearts and expose if there's any offensive way in us and for him to lead us in the way everlasting. So where do you, where do I need to make changes, a commitment, a recommitment? Where do we need to decide? No more sitting on the fence, no more passive neglect, no more excuses about how busy we all are. There come times when you have to make commitments to get off the fence, stop making excuses. If you're sitting on the fence, you're not in the field sowing and weeding and reaping. If you're sitting on the fence, you're not building brick by brick. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, right? Who's on the Lord's side? So what sin do you need to kill? What decisions do you need to make? What changes do you need to make in your life? What do you need to stop talking about and start acting on? Like how kind of God to just, he ordained that all of us do this right now. Please don't just hear this like in one ear out the other. The God of the universe wants you to stop and evaluate 
He wants to bless you with the kind of downstream changes that a time of renewal and recommitment can birth. So what do you need to do? If you don't stop and take the time and actually make a plan for new habits and obedience, of course you're going to continue in the same rut. So let me close with James, some words from James 1, and then we're going to sing. Know this, my beloved brothers, if the musicians want to come up for the final song here. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Amen.